0: Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Paul writes this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let me pray, just ask for the Lord's help, and then we'll begin. You may be seated. Lord, we are so thankful for the gift of your word. We're thankful that it communicates to us everything that we need to know about who you are, about who Christ is, about the salvation that we have in him, about his mercy and love and grace and goodness. And so, Lord, We need your help this morning. We need the work of your spirit to open our eyes to see the glory of Christ. Lord, we go through busy weeks filled with all kinds of different things that demand our attention, but this morning we are coming to see Christ. And we ask that you'd open our eyes to see him and that you would fill our hearts with renewed delight and love. Lord, we pray all of this in his name and for his glory. Amen. Okay, I want you to try to rewind your mind with me back to a little over a year now when you could walk around in the streets without wearing a mask. Do you remember those days? That was actually a thing. You could just walk outside, no mask. Uh, We had never heard of coronavirus, that wasn't a thing. You know, you could have a, a donut and not have to worry about sanitizing your hands before and after. And then, and this is a little over a year now, we started to hear rumors of this new thing that was going on. It was called coronavirus, and it wasn't really affecting us yet, but you remember those days, right? And if you're like me, you're probably reading all the different articles. You know, what is this? How does it work? And some of the articles that you started to read might have started to list symptoms of coronavirus. Do you remember reading these articles at first? And what was one of the symptoms that stood out as being really unusual? Anybody want to mention something that they thought was strange? Yeah, loss of taste. Does anybody else remember reading that for the first time and thinking, wow, that's strange? And maybe some of you, if you're here and you've had coronavirus, you've actually experienced what it's like to be able, you know, to not taste anything. You can't, you know, we, we, I mean, maybe you've seen people or known people who did the test, you know, close your eyes. Is this an apple or is this an onion? And they couldn't tell and they're, you know, chomping on an onion, had no idea. It's a very strange symptom. Well, I think uh, this morning, a lot of us are in a position, and this might sound funny, but I would call it something like we have spiritual coronavirus, and what I mean by that is that our taste isn't developed like it should be, and our taste is scrambled so that it doesn't actually align with reality. We have too much of a taste for worldly things and not enough of a taste for the things of God. Does that make are you following me there? I know that I feel that, and I bet that a lot of us are in the same boat. We go through uh, busy weeks filled with all the normal pressures and concerns of life. Maybe we're feeling weary, beaten down, and we have a lot of familiarity with the things of the world, but maybe we have less familiarity with the things of the Lord. And so, my goal this morning is simple, and I think it's Paul's goal for us in Colossians chapter 3. The goal is that each of us would leave here with less of an appetite for the things of the world and more of an appetite for the things of God. And as we turn to the Word, I'm praying that it would renew all of our hearts to give us more desire to be people who swim in and spend lavish time in considering who our great God is. So that's what we're after today. And if you think all that sounds you know, impractical and distant and far off, let me, just, let me just run this by you. I think that many of us this morning probably are feeling some degree of spiritual frustration. And all I mean by that is this. We really want to follow the Lord. We have a desire to know Him. We want to obey Him. And yet our life sometimes feels mundane, dry. We might use this language, I feel distant from the Lord. I don't feel like I'm close to Him. We're trying to follow his word but we feel like we keep falling into the same struggles with sin again and again and we're not making progress. Maybe it's it's a rare moment when we feel like we're actually astounded by the beauty of Jesus. Maybe you can barely remember the last time you had a moment of just sheer awe and we feel distant from the Lord. What causes that? What leads to that kind of distance from Christ? Well there's a lot of things obviously. Life is complicated and we're complicated people, but one thing that I think plays a big part is this, that our appetites aren't properly tuned. And we are eating too much of the things of earth and then not enough of the things of God. And it's kind of like, instead of feasting on, has anybody ever been to like Roos Chris or something, a really good steakhouse? Instead of feasting on that juicy, buttery steak that is just so good, and the moment that you see it, it's like your mouth starts to water. Instead of eating that, We choose to eat 10 Laffy Taffies, or Snickers, or something that is just completely unsatisfying. And you would say, well, in real life, I'd never do that. But spiritually, we make that mistake all the time. We're caught up in trivialities, and we miss the feast. And so this morning, Paul wants us to consider the way that we can push our mind towards the things of God. And And I know that I need more of that in my life, and I bet that you do as well. And I think that it is the solution to this distance that we feel from the Lord, maybe this frustration that all is not humming and and in tune spiritually. So we want to see what Paul has to say. And before before we get into the text in Colossians, I promise we're going to get there, but before we do, I just wanted to maybe Even set the table a little bit more to get us excited about this. Have you ever walked into your own house or into a restaurant and immediately you know that something's cooking? Have you had that experience? Something's in the oven and you're just thinking, wow, I know that that is my favorite. For me, it's blueberry muffins. If someone's making blueberry muffins, I am just so in. Sit me down. I'd love a blueberry muffin right now, please. That's my thing. Well, when you smell that immediately, you're just ready to, you're ready to dive in. I want to set the table a little bit before we get to Colossians, because maybe you're wondering, well, what benefit comes from this life that is so, you know, fixed on the Lord? When I have this, I mean, what does it even mean to set your mind on the things of God that's so, so vague and intangible? Let me try to just mention a few things that I think the Bible says will happen when we have this kind of a life of delighting in the Lord. Number one, we will experience the greatest joy that is humanly possible. You think that's too strong a claim? I think that's exactly what the Bible says. Augustine said famously in that book, Confessions, that's his kind of autobiography of prayer. he, He wrote this, Thou, O Lord, hast made us for thyself, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in thee. If you're a believer, can you nod your head to that? amen and amen. Lord, you've made us for yourself, and our heart is like a restless, wandering, wild beast until it finally comes to rest in you. That's what he said, and I think he was right. When our souls are feasting on the beauty of God, they're doing what they were designed to do. Your car was made to run on fuel. If you put diesel car, or I'm sorry, diesel fuel in your car that's meant to run on regular gas, does that end up very well? No, my dad did that one time when he was taking his father-in-law's car on a date, and that didn't end up very well. So we don't want to do that. The car is made to run on a certain type of fuel, and our souls are made to see and savor how beautiful God is. Aren't they? Does anything thrill our soul like that? No. And so the first result of this kind of life where we're fixed on Christ is that we experience the greatest joy that human beings could possibly experience this is actually what happens, by the way, in conversion. I don't know if you've thought a little about this or a lot about this, but, but when you come to Christ and move from death to life, God does something in your heart to give you totally new affections. And if you, if you, especially if you were converted later in life, you can just nod your head to that and say, yes, I've experienced that. I know what that's like. Before, no interest in God zero desire to know him, worship him. You might have known about him, seen things that were true about him, but those things didn't click in your mind to give you true desire to know him. Now, as a believer, your heart's been changed so that you can actually see the beauty of God. It's almost like if you ever as a kid went on a field trip to an art gallery. I did that. My my dad enjoys going to art galleries and maybe if you're like me, you know, you walk through and you, you enjoy it, but I know nothing about fine art, literally nothing, and so I cannot appreciate a Picasso from a painting that my friend drew, you know, I mean, it's just, I have no gauge to appreciate that, but if an art critic went to the Getty and walked through and was, was seeing all the pictures there, they have a palette that's been developed and tuned to be able to appreciate what's there. It's, it's, it's the same way with us and the Lord. If we are believers, the Lord has now given us the framework to see and to appreciate and to behold his beauty. And so when we neglect this fixed devotion on the Lord, we are selling our birthright and trading it for something far inferior. The first thing that will happen if we have this kind of a lifestyle is that our life is filled with the greatest joy humanly possible. Here's another thought. We will be freed from dependence on worldly pleasures and treasures. The world is chasing treasures, are they not? People want the next toy, the next boat, the next trip, the next job. They're dependent on worldly things to satisfy them. The person who needs worldly things to, sl- to satisfy them is a slave of their circumstances. Christians, for us, it's, it's not so, because we have immediate access to the true source of all satisfaction, which is the Lord. And if you feel like, man, I just, I can't break away from always, you know, needing that next thing in life, maybe I could suggest to you that you're dining too much at the table of the world, and you're not enjoying all that's there for you in the Lord. Here's a third result. We will see true transformation into the likeness of Christ. If you're a believer, there's, there's a heart in you that beats for holiness. You want to become more like Christ. You want to see sin put to death in your life. How does that happen? The Bible says that it happens when we get Jesus Christ right in front of our eyes and we soak up who He is. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but in 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul writes this, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image." from one degree of glory to another. Do you hear what Paul's saying there? He's making the point that as we take in all of the glory of who Jesus is, God is doing a work in our souls as well. And he's moving us from one degree of glory to the next so that we're pressing on more and more and more and more to become like Christ. And here's the final result. God will be most glorified in us as we testify to his surpassing worth. He will be most glorified in us. How do we bring glory to God? This is something that all of us want as believers, but how do you actually do that? If you ask someone on the street, they might say, well, you bring glory to God by serving him or obeying him, singing worship, worship songs to him, attending church. They could give a long laundry list of answers, but how is God really glorified? What does that actually look like? Let me give an illustration. Let's say that you got really sick, and you're stuck at home, and you're so sick that you're barely even able to crawl out of bed, and a friend, a trusted good friend, comes over to your house to care for you. How do you show honor or pay respect to that friend who's come to care for you? I'll tell you how you don't do it. You don't do it by, at every point where they're trying to help you, butting in and saying, no, I can do that, I can do that, I can do that. Let me, you know, I I can uh, make food for myself. I can, you know, all these different things. The way that you honor your friend is by appreciating the way that they are serving you in that moment, right? That's the way that you say, you are a good friend and I'm appreciating all that you are to me right now. Well, how do we glorify the Lord? It's the same way. He's not most glorified in us when we are, you know, maxing out our days, constantly trying to just uh, serve him, you know, almost to the point of running ourselves ragged. When he receives the most glory is when we are setting our gaze on him and appreciating all of who he is. You have me, ransomed me, brought me into fellowship. You are totally, totally surpassed this world in beauty. I'm going to hold a candle to you hearts are delighted in him in that way. It brings him true glory, because we are testifying, both in our own hearts and then to a watching world, that our God is more valuable than anything else that this world has to offer. That's how he's glorified. So that's the scent in the air. That excites me. I want those things to be true of my life, and I hope it's the same for you as well. And so now let's get to Colossians, because you're probably going, I thought we're getting the food. Well, we are. Here it comes. Colossians chapter 3, and we'll start in verse one. You can turn there if you haven't already. And as you're turning, let me just quickly mention the context that we find ourselves in. Paul is writing the church in Colossae, church, and Paul's writing from prison, and he wants to write to encourage this group of fledgling believers as they're trying to follow Christ in the midst of some pretty significant points of opposition, and there's chiefly two. One is there was this thing called emperor worship in this time. And anybody in the city of Colossae would have been running around, not running around, but they would have been running around saying, not Jesus, but Caesar is Lord. And it would be exactly the same phrasing that we see in our New Testaments. Jesus is Lord. Well, everybody else would be saying, Caesar is Lord. And so this young church needed to know that Christ himself is the true Lord, not Caesar. And that's where you get in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, this beautiful, huge, Christological section where Jesus is just on full display, and many of us are familiar with that section. He is the invisible uh, image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, and on and on Paul goes. So, that addresses their first concern, but then there's another one, and that is this. It's competing spiritual practices that are trying to crowd out what the believers have in Christ, and there's the problem of legalism, there's the problem of asceticism, and there's the problem of mysticism. And so Paul needs to write to address these things and encourage the believers towards true, uh, true religion, true spirituality, which is found in a relationship with Christ. So do this. Uh, let's get a little bit of a ramp up to our passage today by rewinding to chapter 16 of verse 2. So, drop back with me, you can get your finger there in your Bible, to chapter uh, 2, verse 16, and we want to see just what Paul's talking about as he comes into this section in chapter 3. He writes this, "...therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ." Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teaching. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but, and catch this, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Do you see what Paul's saying there? You have all these parties that are clamoring for legalism and asceticism and harsh treatment of the body, and Paul says all of those pursuits, they will benefit you zero in the end. There's nothing good that comes from them. If you look past our passage, starting in verse 5, and we won't read this, but if you start in verse 5 of chapter 3, you would see Paul start to describe not false spirituality, but the true Christian life. He talks about putting sin to death and really making spiritual progress. He talks about putting on the new man and having all of the godly attitudes and dispositions start to characterize your life. So, would you agree with me? Is it fair to say that whatever happens in verses one through four is pretty significant? That's the linchpin that all of this turns on. And so, the passage that we're looking at this morning is the bridge that leads from this unhelpful, not God-honoring spiritual pursuit to true life in Christ. And what is it that Paul encourages us to? He wants us to set our minds on things above where Christ is. So let's get into this this morning, and I want to follow as closely as we can just what Paul is saying here, and his outline is pretty simple, so we're just going to follow that. He, he essentially gives a command which is to seek the things above, and then he follows up with two reasons for why we ought to do what he says. Simple enough, right? There's a command to start, seek the things that are above, and then he gives two reasons, and the reasons are your present position in Christ and future glory with Christ. Present position in Christ and future glory with Christ. So if you're taking notes, that's the outline that we're going to follow this morning, and I'm hoping as we look at these things, it will encourage us in at least a few ways. First, As he explains what it means to seek the things that are above, I hope that it'll just inform our understanding of what that means. Because again, it can feel very intangible and and hard to get our hands on. What does it mean to actually seek the things that are above? Well, Paul's going to clarify some of that for us. And then secondly, as he explains those reasons, I hope it will just give us some fuel and motivation to, as we walk out of here and get back into our regular, full, busy lives, think, I really want to be someone serious about setting my mind on things above. I want that for myself. So, let's get into this and start by looking at Paul's command to seek the things above. In verses 1 and 2, he writes this, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. That's his, that's his encouragement to them, and so we want to unpack this, and I see, I see four things in the passage that Paul, that Paul encourages the believers to with respect to this pursuit of things above, and they're going to inform our own understanding of that, but before we get into it, I just want to say this. I was actually just telling my wife this morning, I don't think I've ever been as, I don't even know if nervous is the right word, but I don't know if I've ever felt as inadequate in preaching as I do this morning. Because we're talking about seeking the living God of the universe. How can you talk about that? This is crazy. And, I, and even as I was preparing, I, I just felt constantly the inadequacy. One, of my own heart, because I know how far I, I stray from this and how worldly my life is. But two, what language is there to describe this pursuit? It's almost like there's a Disney movie where there's an island filled with treasure, but you, you can only get there if you've already been there. You can't find it by a map, and it's a little bit of a catch-22, and there's something of that here. You know, how can you describe to someone what it is to walk closely with God like this? Well, you can say a lot of words, but at the end, this is something that comes down to your personal relationship with the living God, and so I say all of that just by way of preface. This is a road that each of us need to walk on our own, but I do think that what Paul says is really helpful in guiding us and putting some signposts along the road to help us forward. So, like I said, I think that I see four things here that can be really helpful to us. And let's start with the first one. Uh, He gives us four directives. Here's the first This pursuit is for those who have been raised with Christ. This pursuit is for those who have been raised with Christ. Because he starts by saying, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. So the first thing he wants us to take away is that if you're not someone who's been raised with Christ, you have no stake in this game. This is only for people who have been brought from death to life. And what does Paul mean by that? We actually just sang a song. I don't know if you caught it in the lyrics, but it said, oh, you might have to help me, Kirsten, something about you have resurrected us. Does anybody want to nod to that? The love of Jesus Christ, which has resurrected me. We just sang that. Question for those in the room, has anybody actually died and been resurrected by Jesus? Jesus died and was resurrected, but I haven't died yet physically, and I haven't been resurrected. So what does Paul mean if you've been raised with Christ? Because physically speaking, no one fits the bill for that. Well, he's drawing on a theology that he started to develop earlier in the book. You can turn back with me if you want to chapter 2 and look with me at verse 11. chapter 2, verse 11, there's some confusing things here that we, we won't get into, but we do want to see what Paul says about death and resurrection. He says, in Him, and that's Christ, in Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by, circumci- by the circumcision of Christ. And then, here we go, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith, in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, listen to this phrase, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. What's Paul talking about here? His message is that all of us, and we know this, We were born in a state of spiritual death with this long list of legal demands that were stacked against us on account of our sin. Every one of us was in that position, unable to escape that list of legal demands. We were destined for judgment. But when Christ died and rose again, we, through faith in him, can be united with him in that death and resurrection. So that if we have faith in Christ, we have entered into new life already, even though we haven't died yet. And so Paul wants to start, you can go back to chapter 3 now with me, he wants to start by telling us, if you want this life, if you want a life where you seek the things above, you need to make sure you're someone who's been raised with Christ. Um, it's worth noting this morning that there's lots of people, lots of people, who thought that they were those who belonged to Christ but they'd never experienced what Jesus is talking about here. And you remember how Jesus talked to Nicodemus in John three, right? He comes, Nicodemus, to Jesus and says, how can I enter the kingdom of God? And what's Jesus' response to him? You must be born again. You must be born again. I hope you've experienced the new birth. If you haven't, and you're just pursuing outward morality or a church attender, you're barred from access to this life with the Lord but when the Lord makes somebody new, he does a total transformation. And it's not complicated, it's simple. It's through faith in Christ, and it's the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts to make us new and bring us to life with Christ. But when he does, everything changes. And like we said, he puts new desires in our heart that spur us on towards wanting to know and delight in the beauty of Christ. So that's the first, that's the first indicator. uh, not be raised with Christ, but you must be raised with Christ, and I would just say to you this morning, if you don't know Christ, if you've been dancing around him for a long time, maybe you're new visiting the church, I don't know where you're at, but the Bible is very clear that if we repent from sins and trust Christ, God is working in us this miracle of new life, and we enter into paradise, the paradise of knowing God as he truly is through Christ. So that's the first note. Here's a second He says that this seeking of things above is focused on the person of Jesus Christ. Simple enough, he writes this after that, uh, after what we've already looked at. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He mentions things above and then says, this is the realm where Jesus is, and he's seated at the right hand of God. And Jesus' place of sitting at the right hand of God, has at least a few implications for us. Here's the first. Jesus is the king who has all authority now, and when we are seeking the things above, we are seeking that king. There's a a famous and often quoted messianic psalm in the Old Testament, Psalm 110, and in it David writes, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. When Jesus ascended, he took that seat at the right hand of God's throne, solidifying his position as the one who has all power and who will come back to rule again when the enemies of God are made his footstool. Uh, Have you ever heard the phrase, friends in high places? We have a friend in a high place. He is the anointed one who's coming back to reign, and when we say that we are seeking the things above we know that we are seeking the realm of him who has conquered sin and death, risen again, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and will come back to reign forever. That's pretty cool. I, you know, I think I have a friend in high places when I, you know, I don't know, some, actually, actually, you know, my brother yesterday on Instagram, he was tagged in a famous surfer's, uh, I don't even understand how Instagram works, but, you know, on social media, he was in a picture with a famous surfer, uh, surfer, That's closer than I've ever got to friends in high places. I don't know anybody in a high place, but we all know one, right? We know this one. There's a second implication, though, and this one is really encouraging to us, especially if we feel like we're weary and just beaten down by life, and that is this. Jesus is our advocate with the Father. He's our advocate with the Father. 1 John 2, 1, John writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Hebrews 7.25, the author of Hebrews says, consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. What is Jesus doing right now in real time, you know, on Sunday morning, the 25th of April? What's he doing? He's living to make intercession for his people. Isn't that an encouraging thought? I don't think that we would fear anything in life if we knew and could keep in our minds presently that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords was interceding for us before the throne room of the Almighty God. That's what he's doing right now, and that's just incredibly encouraging. So, when we say that we are seeking the things above, we are seeking the realm where Jesus is, and it's all about seeking him. He is our life and the thing that we are pursuing above all else. There's a a writer named J.I. Packer who who wrote in a a little book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, and he was speaking with respect to evangelism, but he said, We should never forget that when we're evangelizing, when we're telling people the gospel, we are calling them to believe in a person, Jesus. We're calling them to come to a person and not just an abstract set of doctrines. And man, does that ring out with a lot of loudness in my life as a believer. It's really easy to get excited about doctrines and the things that we're learning, and those things are good and right and necessary, but we can't forget that Christianity Christianity is ultimately about coming to a person, isn't it? It's about coming to Jesus personally, and we don't want to forget that. Charles Spurgeon once wrote this, if you make doctrine the main thing, you are very likely to grow narrow-minded. If you make your own experience the main thing, you will become gloomy and critical of others. If you make ordinances the main thing, you will be apt to grow merely formal, but you can never make too much of the living Christ Jesus. Remember that all things else are for his sake. Doctrines and ordinances are the planets, but Christ is the Son. Get to love him best of all. The true life of spiritual experience is all bound up in the pursuit of Jesus Christ. He's the beginning, the end, and it's wonderfully simplifying It's not complicated. If I can be fixing my my gaze on Jesus Christ and soaking in his beauty, everything else falls into place. So that's the second thing that Paul wants us to grasp out of all of this. Here's the third. This pursuit of things above involves contemplative focus. It involves contemplative focus. What do we mean by that? Well, look at verse two. Paul develops the thought by saying this now set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Literally, it means think on things that are above. Let these things consume your thoughts and your mind. And so when we talk about setting our mind on things above or seeking the things of God, what we're talking about is actually making an intentional cognitive decision to dwell on the things of God, to let these things run through our minds. Uh, we can't walk to heaven, right? If you, sh- if you find a path, tell me, because I'd love to know how to get there. But I don't think that any of us are going to find that path. And right now, the only vehicle that we have is our minds. That's the only way that we can get there. And so we, when we talk about pursuing Him, we are talking about turning our attention actively, just like we turn our attention onto a sports game, onto a, a kid's uh, ballet performance, just like we turn our attention onto anything, we are talking about turning our attention on to the things that God has revealed, us, revealed to us in the word of God concerning himself, his character, his rule, his heavenly kingdom, and on and on. And I want to point out just a few things that that we should have in our minds as we think about paying a contemplative focus to Jesus. Here's a few. First, it takes time. It takes time there aren't any shortcuts here. And if we're running around like headless chickens in our life, constantly rushing from one thing to the next, never able to spend time with the Lord, we're automatically undercutting ourselves of that deep spiritual life. It takes time. There's, there's no way around that. And so maybe this morning, if you're feeling, yeah, I'm just not enjoying that good time with the Lord, it's time to reassess and say, how can I make sure that I'm spending the time to be paying attention to the things of God? Second, it involves prayer. This, this can't be detached and merely formal. This is a, a relationship with the living God. And as we think about paying attention to the things in the word, oftentimes our minds should be turned towards God with thankfulness and praise. We are engaging with the real and living Christ. Third, uh, it requires some intentionality. And what do I mean by that? Well, a few things. First, not all Christian resources are created equal. Would we agree to that? Some are really helpful. Others maybe aren't so helpful. And there's some wisdom and intentionality in thinking through, what kind of books maybe should I be reading outside of the Word? Are there sermons that I could be listening to that are going to be pushing my mind to think more about Christ? Is there music that's going to help me understand more of who He is and lead my heart to a place of joy and worship? Is there a podcast that I can be listening to on my drive and, and let that soak in my mind? Uh, It takes intentionality. This isn't the kind of thing that just happens passively to us so that we get zapped, but it requires our active engagement. And then finally, I just want to say this. Consider the practice of meditation. We don't talk too often about meditation, but I know at least in my life, I feel like a lot of times my Bible reading is reduced to kind of a grab-and-go option. You know, kind of like the 7-Eleven that you run into, get your coffee, you're on the road again. If that's what our Bible reading becomes then we're missing the richness that could be there for us. Have you ever ran out of time to cook your meal and you started marinating your meat too late and it sat in the pan for about 30 seconds before it had to get on the grill? (laughs) Is it ever as good? It's not, right? Because it didn't have time to work into the meat and really seep through so that that full flavor is there. It sounds kind of funny, but we want to think of our Bible reading and that time that we have with the Lord almost like just stewing in this rich marinade so that it's sinking through to the deepest levels of us. And in that, it involves thinking and time. As I read even these verses, seek the things that are above. If I just take that at surface value and don't think much about it, it doesn't have a lot of impact for me. But when I start to consider, what does that mean for me to seek the things that are above? I wonder how that would impact my prayer life. I wonder how that would impact the use of my time. I wonder where I'm succeeding in this and where I'm struggling. You can see immediately how that starts to spin out into just fruitful and helpful kinds of thoughts that are going to develop our relationship with the Lord. So we want to think about meditation when we're reading our Bibles to let God's truth sink deeply into us. And then there's a a fourth point, a fourth point that Paul says in connection to trying to set our minds on things that are above. And it's this. It involves and necessitates the rejection of worldliness. This pursuit involves and necessitates the rejection of worldliness. Because he says, not only set your mind on things that are above, but he also pauses to clarify, not on things that are on earth. Pastor Tim Keller was recently asked, why do young people have such a hard time connecting with God? And without even skipping a beat, he said, they are way too distracted. They're constantly on their phones, watching TV, on the computer. They never pause to think deeply about who God is. Guess what? I don't think it's just the young people. I think we're all guilty of that in some ways. Someone wrote a book in the 80s, so a long time ago, called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And it was a critique of American culture that we are so driven by instant gratification, entertainment, and the next thing that feels good that we never pause to actually give ourselves to something meaningful and deep and life, uh, life solidifying. We have to turn to a better path than the path that the world walks if we are going to enjoy this life. It may mean that our neighbors think that we're strange in some ways. It may mean that we don't get to give all the time that we wish we could to the baseball game that's on, to the football game that's on, to whatever that other thing that we might like to be doing is on because we are people who are committed to walking with and knowing Jesus Christ. There must be some rejection of the pattern of worldliness if we are going to have this kind of life with the Lord. But let me say one more thing as well. Uh, When we turn to focus on Christ. We actually don't lose the enjoyment of the worldly things. They are brought into the place of their proper enjoyment. Does that make sense? If, if we are focused on these things as an end to themselves, there's not much enjoyment or fruit for us in them. They have their reward, but it's kind of like Jesus said to the Pharisees, they have their reward in full, and there's nothing else that comes from it. But when our minds are fixed on Christ, then every good thing that comes down from Him is something that now points us back up towards him. It's like it's a ray from the sun that is not just you know, beautiful in itself, but it points us back towards the sun that it came from. And so when we have a mind that's set on things above, it doesn't close off the paths of enjoyment of worldly things. In fact, it actually makes us way better equipped to enjoy a baseball game, to enjoy a good meal, to love a good cup of coffee, a great conversation with an old friend. These things become sweet and rich and meaningful when we realize that they all spill down to us from our Heavenly Father. Are you following me on that? And I just think that's encouraging to know that to to say no to worldliness does not mean to say no to the enjoyment of the good things that God's put in our life, but it does mean that we don't pursue these things as an end in themselves. Everything comes back to us to a vision of Christ. There's more that uh, we could say about all of that, but Those are the four things that that I see. That this is for those who've been raised with Christ. This is focused on the person of Christ. It involves contemplative focus, and then it necessitates the rejection of worldliness. And as we move to quickly consider the rest of these verses, I do just want to say one last thing about seeking the things that are above. And again, I've already acknowledged, this feels like it's like seeking that island that, you know, how can you give directions to it? It's just, it's so personal. And yet, I do think this is really helpful. Uh, Jonathan Edwards taught, and I'm quoting another theologian here, but he taught that the essence of true religious experience is to be overwhelmed by a glimpse of the beauty of God, to be drawn to the glory of his perfections and to sense his irresistible love. That's the essence of true religious experience. So when we talk about seeking the things that are above, we are talking overall, beyond all else, of getting into the frame of our vision a glimpse and a view of the beauty of God. That is what it's all about. And if you feel like it has been a long time since your soul was thrilled by his glory, then I would just get on your knees and start to pray, Lord, I know that you are infinitely more beautiful than anything else in this world. Give me an appetite for you. I want to know you. So that's what Paul says about seeking the things that are above. And now he gives us two reasons by way of motivation, and we need to move quickly through these now. But look with me first at this first reason, which is our present position in Christ. He says, for you, this is verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Our present position with Christ involves both our death, which we already talked about, that we've died. If for us to focus on the things of this world right now would be like dressing up a corpse. We don't belong here anymore. Our life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Paul says that our life is hidden with Christ in God, we are talking about our life being kept safe with the Lord until his return, and we are talking about this incredible fact that as believers we now participate in the divine nature. That's what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, that we have become partakers of the divine nature. Within the Trinity, for all eternity, there has been this perfect current of love that's flowed between Father and Son and Holy Spirit. If you've ever been to the lazy river at Wild Rivers or a, a, a water park, you know that you know, there's those rivers that just flow around the park. Well, in some sense, it sounds silly to say, but when we have come to Christ, we have been thrown into that current of the love that's been circulating between Father and Son and Holy Spirit for all eternity. We now enjoy that love. The Holy Spirit is in us, and He is responding to the Father and the Son with love that starts to animate our own love, and we enjoy partaking in that. When we start to think about those things, it dulls the attraction that this world offers to us. What could the world give us that would be even a fraction of the sweetness of partaking in the nature of God and being people who are brought into the divine love. That's hard to be. In fact, it's impossible to be, And that's the thing that's gonna be thrilling our souls for all eternity. So a first reason that Paul gives us is don't forget that you are someone who has been hidden with Christ in God. Your identity is in heaven with him now. And when you go back to worldly things, you're dumpster diving after being presented with a feast on the table. Don't do that. And then there's a second motivation, and that reason is future glory, because he says in verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Very simple here, just two thoughts. First, glory is coming. Christ will come in glory. We will appear with him in glory. And when we think about our glorious eternity, what is the thing that's so exciting about it? It is seeing the beautiful glory of God. That's what's so exciting. It's not the, you know, the streets of gold or anything like that. It's actually being with the Lord and seeing his glory. And the path to walk uh, down and pursue that glory has been opened to us now through Christ. So when we do that on earth, we are just uh, walking into the very thing that's been laid up for us for all eternity, the richest reward. And then second, there's just this little phrase that he tucks in. And we'll close with this, but it's just, if I could keep this in my head, I know that it would change my life in a lot of ways. He says, when Christ, who is your life, appears. And I just, I want to close by saying, we think about this life, pursuing the Lord, setting our mind on Him. Think about it with this in the back of your mind. Christ is our life. Not a portion of our life, not a piece not just the missing puzzle piece that makes all of our other schemes fit together. The old puzzle is gone and a new picture has come in and it's Christ. He is our life. And pursuing him is the pursuit of the very thing that we were designed to do. Just like the car runs on fuel, we were made to see and savor the glory of Jesus. And we want to set our minds on him and leave the things of this world behind as we move further and further and further into beholding his glory. Amen.